uh, it's good to be with you today. It's good to be able to share with you from, uh, from God's Word, and uh, we want to do that uh, this morning. Um, grateful for the opportunity. We're doing a three-year journey through the, through the Bible, and we're into the New Testament record of the early church. And for the month of January, we're doing a, a, a mini-series, four-part series uh, called Show and Tell. And it's all about uh, how the early church and how we give, how we speak, how we trust, and how we live the gospel. And last week, Josh asked you to uh, share uh, memories from your experience with sh- in school with show and tell. I don't know if you noticed in the comment section last week, I thought it was quite hilarious that Kate posted saying that someone lost a tarantula <laughs> at our show and tell when I was about eight years old and the principal pulled the fire alarm to evacuate the school while they searched for the spider. I thought that was quite an interesting show and tell period. I'm sure that that was a teachable moment. But... Uh, in the, the early church did show and tell. They, they showed the gospel, and they told the gospel. They proclaimed the message, but they also lived out the truth of that message uh, for real. But not all the time. As we saw last week, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Um, Josh spoke with us last week about the, uh, the radical generosity that marked the early church. He pointed out that Jesus talked more about money than any other thing, not because it's more important, but because it's so telling how we relate to money and what we do with it and the place it uh, can hold in our hearts. Um, But that radical generosity that the early church experienced came out of their radical devotion to to Christ and uh, to one another. But with a radical devotion and a radical generosity, Um, there comes a great temptation when it comes to that uh, base urge we have to be well thought of. I I sometimes, I I think we could call it the wow factor, you know. And Ananias and Sapphira, they they succumb to the wow factor. We have to be really careful of that, don't we? Uh, I loved, uh, Josh said last week, uh, who you pretend to be is not the person God loves. And that struck me. I don't know if it struck you, but it struck me at the time when he said it. Who you pretend to be is not the person God loves. So this week we're thinking about uh, speaking, our speaking. And uh, not only did the early church demonstrate a radical generosity, but, but also a, a radical boldness, all right? A radical uh, courage, even uh, when met with opposition persecution, and even death. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this and, and see it in the life and death of Stephen. The first uh, has that place in history as the first Christian martyr. The word martyr, by the way, means literally means witness. Um, you probably know that. But, but uh, when we say that Stephen became the first Christian martyr, we're referring to the fact that he witnessed Unto, to Christ unto death. So today's about telling, but I want to recognize, and I want for us to recognize the important relationship between what we do and what we say, because the former qualifies the latter, and that is what's being showcased in these accounts, and Stephen, whose story we're looking at today, is a really strong example of this truth, that there is an uh, a vital relationship between what we do and what we say. Um, I want to just go back with you. I know you've all opened up your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, but I want to just go back to chapter 4 for just a moment and, uh, and, and read a little bit there before we, we dive into uh, chapter 6 and 7. But uh, before we even do that, uh, as you turn to Acts chapter for, um, could you just pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to sing together today and to pray together and to just be together and spend time together. And, and thank you, Lord, that it's all about you. Thank you, Jesus, for how uh, amazing your grace to us is and how you allow us to, to uh, know you through your sacrifice on our behalf. 
Thank you for the immense love that you pour into our hearts and the generosity of your people. Thank, I thank you, Lord, that, that I have been a recipient over and over again of the generosity of your people. Lord, I confess uh, today that I, am not, I do not have the boldness that I really need to have and, or the generosity that I need, really need to have a lot of the time. Um, and we need your help, Lord, this morning, not just to, to, to clearly understand what your word says and, and, and what it requires of us and, and, and what we need to do in response to your word, but, Lord, we need uh, your, for you to empower us. We need for you to enable us to, um, to do these things, uh, to give, to, to tell, um, to trust you, Lord, uh, we just ask that your spirit would be our teacher today. We pray for each one that you would be uh, glorified and magnified in our lives as your people uh, for our good and, and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to go back to jo John or, uh, Acts 4 because uh, Josh, this is where Josh started last week too. Is Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. I think that he read these verses and, and I just wanted to uh, come back through and, and follow up a little bit. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37 is, is a description, an amazing description of the, the life and witness of the early church. It says, now the full number of those who believe were one uh, were in heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now Josh said last week that it, it, it had the appearance uh, of socialism. Now, uh, it wasn't socialism because socialism, nobody owns anything. Um, and... This had the appearance of socialism because nobody was saying, mine, mine, mine. But Peter made it very, very clear in Acts chapter 5, verse 4, that Ananias and Sapphira owned the property, and it was theirs to do with as they wished. And so we're not talking about socialism, but it's something that appeared uh, to be socialism. And... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's important because socialism has become a really hot topic in our world again today, right? Uh, but think about this. Uh, if you don't actually own anything, then there is neither a need nor an opportunity to be generous. But what this was was not socialism. Josh just kind of left you hanging there last week. We do that, right? We say something and then we don't get back to qualify it. And we know you love long, long sermons where we qualify everything we say, right? <laughs> so there's always these things, right? But, but, um, but this is not socialism. This is radical generosity. And that's what he was talking about last week. And so the, it says that uh, no one uh, said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And the great, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And that radical generosity that's described there is then uh, illustrated in the life of Barnabas and then illustrated negatively in the, in the lives and the stories of Ananias and Sapphira that Josh led us through uh, last week. What precedes those verses and those, those accounts is Acts chapter 4 where the apostles Peter and John are um, arrested and drug into the council uh, to give an account for the, uh, the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple and the testimony that they have for Christ there, right? And the council... Um, uh, threatens them to stop uh, proclaiming Christ and to go away and to, to, to stop talking about Jesus, to stop doing what they were doing, stop saying what they were saying. And, of course, they left the council, they went out, and they 
got together and they prayed for what? Boldness to keep doing what they've been doing and saying what they were saying. But it was the, their doing, and this is the part that I want to just kind of uh, throw out at you. It was the, their doing that gave rise to the occasion of their speaking. It all, started with, it all started with that layman at the temple gate, right? And uh, if it hadn't been for that incident, you wonder whether the story would have even went the way it went. And so this is, this, I think this is an important point. And even if you go back to the day of Pentecost, if we back up all the way to chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came on those first disciples and filled them, uh, Peter's great evangelistic speech there was actually his giving an account for what was going on to the crowd that had gathered. And so in, in many ways, these, these accounts of speaking can be seen as answers to inquiries made as a result of what was actually happening. And so the principle would be that it's not just about what we say, it's about what we do. And what we say is often occasioned by what we do. Then in, in Acts chapter 5, we have at the, uh, the very end of the story of, of Ananias and Sapphira, where we left off last week, we have this description. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done through the people by the hands of the apostles, or uh, done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Which is, by the way, hands of the apostles is a phrase that occurs over and over again in these early chapters of Acts. And it's an important reference, uh, as we shall see in the story of Stephen. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on the cots and mats, that as Peter came at by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. <coughs> Excuse me. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So people were gathering even from around the surrounding area, coming into Jerusalem, uh, and and it says there that they were all healed. That um, that statement there is um, reminiscent of a statement. Uh, in the book of Luke, where it says that Jesus, when people were coming like that to Jesus, they were all healed. And that statement occurs one more time in the book of Acts in the ministry of the apostle Paul. And uh, so, so you have this description in Acts chapter 5, uh, not dissimilar to, to uh, the description in Acts chapter 4 of the life of the early church. And then what follows that in chapter 5, to finish off chapter 5, is the apostles are arrested again. Because they didn't stop doing what they were doing, and they didn't stop saying what they were saying, and they were arrested again, and they were drugged in before the council again, and this time, they beat them. And we're not talking about a paddle, right? We've all had the paddle, maybe? No, maybe some of you haven't had the paddle. But we're talking about a vicious form of, of punishment uh, as a deterrent. And then they threatened them. Makes you wonder, you know, what, what's going to happen next time, right? If, if they go out and they don't stop doing what they're doing and saying what they're saying, what's going to happen next time, right? So they beat them and they threaten them again and then they, they, uh, the apostles went out again and what did they do this time? Well, it says in verse 41 and 42 of chapter 5, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What name? The name of Jesus. And then verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They never stopped. They went everywhere, <laughs> All the time, telling about Jesus. But what they said was always in conjunction with what they did. 
Now, I want to take just a few moments to talk about uh, the signs and wonders that we read about in these early chapters of Acts. Uh, because when we talk about what they did, it's, it's pretty hard to talk about what they did without talking about signs and wonders because it says that many signs and, were done, and wonders were done uh, by the hands of the apostles among the people, right? And we'll see in the life of Stephen, we'll see this too. So just to comment on that as we get into the, the life and death of Stephen, I, I, I want us uh, to think about a little bit about, about this because uh, we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we apply these things? You know, because if we want to be thinking not just about what they did, but what we do, we need to think a little bit about this, right? I would suggest to you, this is how, this is how um, uh, my perspective on these things is I see it. There's two ditches we can fall in. We want to stay on the road, right? And if you're going to stay on the road, you need to keep, keep it out of the ditches by, right? So... I see, see two ditches here. On the one hand, we could simply say, well, it happened then, it's going to happen now. That's just the way it is. Um, the other ditch, as I see it, is to say, no, nah, God just doesn't do miracles anymore. This was an exceptional time. This was a completely exceptional situation. I think that's the ditch on the other side of the road. Was it an exceptional time? Yes, it was. I think we have to look at the description of uh, people bringing their, their sick friends into Jerusalem to just, even that, even that Peter's shadow might, might come into contact with them and they were all healed. I think that that's exceptional. And I think any honest person would have to say that's, that's exceptional. But is it completely exceptional? Um, there, there are many things about this that were um, uh, uh, unrepeatable uh, events of history, not unlike the death and resurrection of Jesus or the initial coming of the Holy Spirit into uh, the world. Uh, first-hand eyewitness testimonies to the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus will not be repeated. Those things ended with the apostles. That's not your testimony or mine. I can't tell you I saw Jesus uh, in the flesh crucified and risen bodily from the grave and ascended to heaven. I can't do that. But that doesn't mean I don't have a testimony about Jesus. So these things are exceptional that we're reading about, but I would suggest uh, in that sense that we would say, the uh, biblical exegetes would say they're not all normative. However, I would suggest to you that that doesn't, doesn't uh, therefore lead us to conclude, conclude that no one will be healed. Does it? That God will do no miracles. I don't, I don't think that that's true. Uh, but where does that all leave us then? Where, how do we apply these things? Let me, let me give you my take on this. All right? This is what I think, and you can take it and think about it and pray about it and examine it for yourself. But here's what I think we should do, because that, that's the question here. What is should we do? I think we should do whatever God enables us to do in order to create opportunities to say what we need to say about how and why we do what we do. Because I think that that's the, whole, the main point here in all of this. Isn't it not? What are those things? Well, they're not a bunch of religious stuff. I know that. But I think there are things that resonate with the law of God written on people's hearts. I think there are things that, uh, that uh, reflect the heart of God, things that the Spirit of God can use to get a hold of people's ears first and then hopefully their hearts, acts of courage and compassion, caring for people and caring for one another and sharing the good news about Jesus who is the only sure hope we have. I, I, I think that we should do whatever God enables us to do. And if, and if it ends up being something miraculous, praise God. 
But I don't think we should be that that should be the, our focus so that we think that, that and unless we can do something miraculous or unless somebody people, people are doing something that we, is perceived as being totally supernatural, that we don't have a, a, a mission in a ministry because we do. These were before they were anything. Look at the life of Jesus. Before his miracles were anything, they were acts of compassion. Am I right? Acts of compassion. They weren't just a show that he was putting on, saying, look at me, look how powerful I am. They were, they were acts of great compassion and great courage. And that's what we need to do. That's what we need to be doing. And the story of Stephen illustrates this very, very well. Let's jump into Acts chapter 6 because that's where the story of Stephen begins. Although Acts chapter 7 is where the story fleshes out. Um, Acts chapter 6 verse 1 says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in daily, the daily distribution. That's that food sharing that we talked about, that Josh talked about last week and that we read in the scriptures. So Acts chapter 6 starts with a problem. Acts chapter 5 has a problem, Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 6 starts with another problem. There were problems in the early church. You might say, I know, Ananias and Sapphira, that was a really big problem. Well, here's another big problem. And, you know, does anybody ever, have you ever heard this? The problem with the church is, <laughs> I hear that pretty regular. In fact, I heard it this week, truth be told. And um, what do you do when you hear a statement like that? Well, I know what I instinctive, my instinct is because I identify with the church and I feel attacked, right? But uh, a lot of the times when people say, you know what the problem of the church is? They're right. <laughs> because we have problems. There's all kinds of things in the church today that are problems. There's all kinds of things that, that need to change or that we don't do quite the way we should be doing. In our, and our hearts aren't always right with God. And, and we do have problems. Uh, I th don't know about you, but I think it's kind of encouraging to read that the early church had problems. Because we can read these passages and think, wow, you know, we are failing so bad. Well, let's just call it a blessed mess. Because that's, God works in messy situations. And our lives are messy. And, the ch and church is messy. And yeah, problems, yeah, we got problems. What was the problem here? Well, you could call it a lot of things, or you could just call it racism. It says that the uh, Hellenists um, were being neglected in the sharing, food sharing. And you say, well, it wouldn't have been intentional. I don't know. Why would we think that? What, what reason would there be to think that it's not intentional? Or that maybe it wasn't intentional. Does that make it good or right? No. The, the thing is, though, here's, here's the thing, and this is one of the most important things to understand about this. This problem that existed here was precisely the kinds of actions that are incompatible with the gospel mission and message which is intended to break down all those barriers, including those ethnic barriers, as we seek to uh, communicate a message of, of love and reconciliation and, 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 uh, and good news that, that breaks down those, those, those barriers. That's the main theme of the book of Acts. And then you have all these parallel sub-themes, right? Themes like generosity and, uh, and boldness and persecution and unity. Those are all sub-themes that depend on the main theme, which is the, the gospel mission of the church to the ends of the earth, breaking down every one of those barriers. That's the main theme of the book of Acts. That's what the book of Acts is all about, as the Spirit of God 
enables us to do so. Let's get on with the text. Acts chapter 6, verse 2 through 6. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should get... Have you ever thought, how did that happen? How did they get the word out, eh? What a massive undertaking that would even be. We're talking thousands and thousands of people all around the whole area, but somehow they didn't have internet. They didn't have email or, or texting or, or TikTok or anything like that. How did they get the message out? How do you think they got the message out? Word of mouth. Yeah. Still, still extremely effective communication. So they got the message out and they, uh, that they were going to have a meeting. And where are we here? It's, um, they summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the wisdom, uh, sorry, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and uh, I don't know how to pronounce some of these names, uh, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a a proselyte of Antioch, and these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. There's that that reference to the apostles' uh, uh, hands there. So, <clears throat> so they had a big problem. It needed to be addressed. So they called a meeting, called a business meeting. And everyone shows up. That's what it says. <laughs> That's what it says there, right? It says they all came. And they addressed the issue. Now, I just want to point out a couple things as we make our way towards chapter 7 here. The passage that we just read does not teach that the ministry of the word and prayer is more important than what we might call humanitarian causes. The passage does not say that. It only says that we can't give up the former for the latter. We can't stop the ministry of the, the word and a prayer to address these other issues It's not a matter of either or. It's not a matter of one being more important than the other. It is an essential aspect that we do both. That is indicated by the fact that both of these things are referred to as ministry. The the same word is used to refer to both in the Greek. And it's that that word uh, diakonia from which we get the word Deacon. Diacono, however you pronounce that, diaconia. It's the word we get the word, it's uh, the Greek word we get the word deacon from. But it's, uh, in, in, the, in the verb form, it means to serve. And the, so the same word is used for both. Um, something else about this passage here, um, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's amazing how it shows the importance if we're going to get Uh, done what needs to be done, how much we need to share that responsibility and share in the leadership of that responsibility as well. This is really um, a great picture of shared shared leadership and to get, you know, to to address those needs, to to resolve problems, uh, problem solving, team building, shared leadership. These are all sub-themes of the main theme of the book of Acts. But, but another thing that's important to take note that we might not catch uh, without studying, if we simply just read it, we might not realize that every one of these names is Greek. Stephen, Philip, all the others listed there, they're Greek names. I think that the, the, the early church did something really wise here not only in addressing their immediate situation and immediate problem, but also uh, in um, also as it relates to the mission of taking the gospel to the world, crossing and breaking down those ethnic uh, barriers. It's really significant. Um, we could talk about the Hellenists and the Hebrews here. 
you know, in order to do that well, I would have to take you all the way back to Nehemiah and Ezra and the dispersion, the diaspora and all of that, but we won't get into that. I, you know, I love that, that whole topic and that whole background and the understanding it gives us to some of these, these New Testament passages, but hopefully you're, you're uh, somewhat aware of that. Uh, I want to say in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So they had a problem, they called a meeting, they addressed the issue, they did it in a way that showed great uh, wisdom and, re- and uh, uh, recognition of what the mission was and these important features and the result was uh, that the mission had of the church advanced. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. And then that statement there, great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And that's important too. What do priests, what do, priests do? Where did they serve? Mostly in the temple. That's right. It's not that they didn't serve elsewhere, but the, the focus was on the temple. You could say that, that the priesthood was temple-centered, uh, okay? And so keep that, just keep that in mind as we read on here. Uh, let's, let's read on here. Chapter 6, verses 8 to 14. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, in other words, from all over the the dispersion, diaspora, uh, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And they could not, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Remember, that was one of the, the things that they looked for when they chose the seven, right? Uh, Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came up and they seized him and they brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So, Stephen is doing stuff. It refers to them here as great wonders and signs. He was also talking. He obviously was talking because it says there that they couldn't withstand the wisdom that God had put into his mouth by the spirit that indwelled him. And so I would say this is yet another example again of where uh, a person's words were occasioned uh, by their actions, uh, calling on them to give an account for what they are doing. And I think the application in that for us is, is important. I think that it's as we serve the Lord by serving people, uh, loving one another and reaching out to others, um, that we will have opportunity to speak. And what we say will be qualified by what we do. And I think that's, that that is important. And I think that that's um, what uh, happened here. It was, it was what he said that got him into trouble, but it was what he did that got their attention. And then the trouble only provided a big opportunity for the message that he had to share. 1 Peter 3.15, some of you have memorized this verse. Uh, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, oftentimes people will ask the question, how do I, how do I share my faith in Christ? How do I actually do that? And I, I would say some pretty s- sound biblical advice would be just do stuff that you know is going to get people's attention in a way that creates an opportunity for you to explain why you do what you do. And then don't, don't miss those opportunities when they come. You don't have to be overly articulate or profound. I don't know how um, serving tables 
became signs and wonders. I don't even know how much time uh, transpired here because you realize the book of Acts covers over 30 years of history, church history. That's important to keep that in our minds. But I do know that the stuff that Stephen was doing uh, showcased the gospel. Stuff that flowed out of his devotion for Christ and for people. And they haul him in before the ruling council, just like the apostles before him. And they bring in some cronies to bear false witness, just like they did to Jesus, just like they did to the apostles, Peter and John. It's the same things they accused Jesus of. Destroy this temple in three days, I will rise it up again. Boy, they did not like that because the temple was the center of their, their lives. And by the way, this is all taking place where? Where are they? They're in the temple. Read the text, it tells you they're in the temple. That's where the council was being held because that's where that was the center of their life together. And where did we, we told that the disciples, when they, when they went out, um, that passage earlier says they preached the word every day. Where did they preach it? In the temple courts and from house to house. The temple was so central, and that's where the priests' uh, lives were all centered, of course, as well. And a lot of them were coming to faith in Christ. And then this Stephen guy, he, he, starts, he says he's got something to say about the temple. They didn't like it. You know, what stands out mostly in the life of Stephen, and the whole story of Stephen, I think, is how much Stephen's uh, life and death was like the life and death of Jesus. You read through his, his, um, chapter 7, and it's, it's, uh, it's amazing, the correlation. He was following in the master's steps. Acts chapter 6, verse 15 says... And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I don't know what that means. Honestly, I don't know. I think he would have had to have been there. But I'm going to take a guess at what I think it, it points to. And I think it points to the fact that they never forgot his face. I know one young Pharisee who was there as part of that council never forgot his face. His name was Saul, a man from Tarsus who becomes a very prominent figure in the book of Acts as we go on. What follows this scripture is then a speech given by Stephen to the council in the temple courts. And it's uh, goes all the way from chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 50. And in his speech to the council, Stephen presents an overview of the history of the people of Israel, beginning with the call of Abraham. You remember the call of Abraham? The Lord says to Abraham, go to a far country that I will show you, leave your kindred, and your father's house, and I will show you a land, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and through you every nation on earth will be blessed. Right on mission. Right on mission. Now, we're not going to Read through the, those, those verses. I hope that you have. I trust that you, if you haven't recently, that you will. But take note with me of where Peter, where Peter yeah, where Stephen ends his history lesson. Verses 58, or sorry, 48, 49, and verse 50. This is where he ends his, his history lesson. He says, Yet the Most High, he goes all the way from Abraham all the way through to the temple. 
And then he says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of host will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? All of this is so interesting because the people that Stephen's speaking to and all of the bystanders as well, and I would include all of the early church in this statement as well. They're all centered on the temple. They're all looking inward at the center of the nation. And Stephen, even in, even when I, in quoting Abraham, you know, in the call of God upon Abraham's life, it's obvious that that's not what God's doing. And Stephen knew that. <laughs> that's part of being a Hellenist. That was part of being part of the diaspora. He, Stephen and, and, and his compatriots, they were starting to get a much better handle on this idea of what it meant to take the gospel first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's where he, he, he looks. <laughs> you know, one of the, problem, one of the problems... With the church. You know what the problem is with the church? <laughs> we are so focused on ourselves. We are so inward focused. So was the early church. I know we celebrate how, you know, how powerfully they, they reached out, but they struggled with outreach. They struggled with those boundaries. As much as, you know... When Jesus is ascending, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom now? <laughs> Someday that's going to happen. But right now, you will receive power that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Come on, guys. Get with the program. But they weren't getting with God's program because they struggled with it the same way that we struggle with it. And when Peter gets to, to this part of his sermon his speech, whatever you want to call it, he, once he quotes that scripture reference to God saying that he, uh, you know, doesn't dwell in temples and that his, uh, the whole earth is his footstool, he just launches on them. Now, if you read it, it sounds harsh. His words sound harsh. He, he called these guys stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Those are not, those are not the words you use when you want to make friends, are they? And you read it, it sounds a little bit harsh, but it reminds me of Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He called them whitewashed sepulchers and brood of, vipes, of snakes and vipers. And so I, I have to believe here that, that the circumstances are similar. I think that P Stephen realizes by now, he, he sees where all this is going. This is the ruling council of the nation that delivered Jesus over to be crucified. The ruling council that arrested the uh, apostles and, ha and threatened them and then arrested them again and had them beaten. He knows where this is all going. He can see it really, really clearly. And so he just launches verse 51 through 60. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where have you heard that before? The parallels here are striking, aren't they? between Stephen and Jesus, between Stephen and the apostles, 
those who laid their hands on Stephen and appointed him to the ministry and message that he had to share, just like Jesus. This was not unlike the death of Jesus. The disciples, as we know, looked at the death of Jesus and they thought, wow, this is the worst thing that could happen. This is the worst case scenario. Remember that? Remember reading through those passages of the death of Jesus and how the, the disciples responded? And sometimes we respond that way when we look at the death of Stephen. Like, like wow, you know, he was such a great man. He was doing such great things. He, he got so much right and he had so much to say and, and he had such a contribution to make. And now he's laying on the ground dead, stoned to death. What a waste. But a couple of things, right? Acts chapter 8, which we're not going to get into, but Acts chapter 8 verse 1 tells about a great persecution that broke out that day going forward. And it says that the disciples were scattered everywhere. Just scattered like the sower would scatter the seed. Jesus said the seed is the word in Acts chapter 8 verse 4 says that everywhere they went, they took the word with them. And I don't think it's stretching it at all to say that Stephen accomplished in his death what he attempted to accomplish in his life. And then there was this young man named Saul, right? He guarded the jackets of those who threw the stones. He was part of that ruling council. And he figured prominently in the persecution of the church and the death of Stephen. And Saul never forgot Stephen's face. He never got over it. Because I'll never get over the grace of God to him. He talked about it all the time. It became part of his testimony. He shares it. You'll read it later in Acts chapter 22. When he shared a testimony there, he mentioned Stephen by name. Of course, by then, a lot had happened in Saul's life. Because after persecuting the church, Saul eventually came to know Christ as Lord and Savior and lived to preach the message he once persecuted and to build the church he once persecuted. But he never got over the death of Stephen and he never got over God's grace to him. He will refer to it many times, and you can also read about it in his letters that he wrote, because, of course, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, is responsible for giving us most of the New Testament. I think that we need to recognize that Stephen played a big part in that. A very big part. Stephen lived like Jesus, and he died like Jesus. On mission. And that mission is the central theme of the book of, our, uh, book of Acts, not the book of art, the book of Acts. And it's the heart of the New Testament church. It involves spreading the gospel both by word and by deed, both with compassion and with courage, even in the face of 
tremendous opposition and persecution, even unto death, for the glory of Jesus Christ, the name above all names, the one we worship. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, I thank you for these loved ones. I thank you so much for your church. I thank you for each and every one who names the name of Jesus. And Lord, we are so far from perfect. We have so many problems. There is a lot of mess in our lives, personally and together. We struggle. But Lord, we pray that you would embolden us and fill us with the compassion to do and to say what we need to do in order to say what we need to say to spread the message, the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Lord, we know that every life matters and the people that you want us to reach out to, Lord, matter more than anything else on this earth. Help us not to be inward focused, Lord. Help us to look out, outward and to go with compassion and boldness. Thank you for dying for us, Lord Jesus. And thank you for Stephen's willingness to live and to die for you. Help us, Lord. God, please help us. We need you to enable us for any of these things and all of these things. We praise you and worship you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.